This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. How do you write a story about your life that people will actually want to read? That is the question that writers wanting to write a memoir need to ask, because if you search Amazon for memoirs, over 100,000 crop up. These days, it seems like everyone feels qualified to write a memoir. Blame it on the social media world we live in, but many of us believe my life is so interesting, I must write about it. In a New York Times article titled The Problem with Memoirs, the author writes, authors who are memoir eligible, meaning their stories have value and are told in a compelling way, are lost in a sea of people you've never heard of writing uninterestingly about the unexceptional, apparently not realizing how commonplace their little wrinkle is or how many other people have already written about it. Memoirs have been disgorged by virtually everyone who has ever had cancer, been anorexic, battled depression, lost weight. The question you must ask again is this, how am I going to make my memoir worth reading and hence memorable and life-changing for the reader? Mickey Maudlin, Senior Vice President of Editorial at HarperOne, a division of HarperCollins, is here today to discuss the elements of a memoir, what makes a memoir great, and how to avoid the pitfalls of writing a memoir that nobody will ever want to read. Thank you, Mickey, so much for being here today. We're so glad to have you. I'm looking forward to it. So Dave, before we dip into this great interview that we're going to have today, I can just feel it. Let's talk about where we've made progress this week. Okay, I'll start. Mine is so unmemorable and so uninteresting, but I have to say it. So Jana and I have started to walk like every other night, which, you know, that, that might not seem like a big thing to you, but for us, it's, uh, it's something we have not done. So I think we've done it six or seven times. We don't do it every night. So that's progress. It's not so much, it's not about the exercise. It's more about having time together because my, my, uh, one of my daughters now, well, two of our daughters lives with us, our 13 year old daughter, which she should live with us. And we have an older daughter now who's 23, who lives with us. She's a nurse and is just transitioning from a job she had down in Nashville and is living with us for a time, which we love having her. Right. But there is just no time for the two of us. So when we get to do this, it's amazing. Like we have actual things to talk about. So it's, I'm calling that progress. Do you talk about like your day or your future or what are some of the things you talk about? Just all of it, probably. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, future, the future is too grand, right? On these walks, that would, that would give it too much, would put too much pressure on us. No, a lot of it is just about, uh, about our days. My wife is a nurse. She works uh, in, a, in a school district. Uh, she works at a couple elementary schools. And I'm telling you, during COVID, there's all sorts of drama where parents will lie about their students' COVID test. And she's working with diabetic kids and, you know, trying to manage their their numbers throughout the day. Her day is a lot more interesting than mine is. So we talk (laughs) about that. And then I I grunt about what we do here at uh, Journey 66 and CZ and that's our that's our walk, pretty much. Does she gain interest in it, Dave? Does she gain interest in Journey sixty six? And- she does. God bless her. <laughs> she gains interest in Journey sixty six. That's fun. <laughs> How about you? 
Well, mine has to do with my husband. I, I guess we're on the same track and mine actually has to do about future thinking. I never think about our future and what it's going to look like. I mean, I'm 46, Jerry's 47, but suddenly he's starting to think about retirement. He wants to retire early from, from Motorola. He's a software engineer and he kind of hates it. So he's looking to retire and do maybe something else. Anyway, so we were just talking about, you know, what would it look like in 10 to 15 years to retire and where would we go and what would we do? And it felt like a rite of passage, like something that grownups do. I've never talked about retirement, so it feels <laughs> like I'm old. <laughs> anyway, so I guess to actually talking about the future is a good thing because it makes you realize where you're at, where you want to be, goal setting. And I'm not naturally like that. So anyway, I think that's progress. So did you feel like, were you on the same page? Did you come away going, yeah, I think we, I could see us doing X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I mean, it's so much about retirement is the financial model, right? And so just like, what, what do you really need to live off of? And, you know, so, so lots of that. And so getting on the same page about what our, what our expectations are, you know, are we going to want to travel a lot? No, that's not really important to us. So, you know, it's, those kind of things that we're having conversations about. So it's good. That is good. That's huge progress. Yeah, I think so. What about you, Mickey? Do you have any progress that you want to talk about here with the world of 3066 listeners? <laughs> After hearing you guys, I want to start talking to my wife about our retirement as we go on walks. Um, <laughs> I was and now Dave knows because we we live close to each other, and I um, I stop by we stop by his house. But Karen and I love walking together. That's I, I think it's a great discipline. In fact, during we did it like ever since we went into the pandemic, Karen and I would walk. And one of the things we live in a suburban area, you know, it's all schools and kids. We're always shocked that there's no one walking. Like we're all in our houses. This is during the you know the center of the pandemic. We're yeah. all trapped in our house, working at home every day, and we would not see a soul. Wow! <laughs> and I was—I just thought that was one of the strangest. Yeah, what were they doing? I felt like there were more people out in our neighborhood. We would go running on the river trail by our house, and it was so crowded every single day. I felt like there were more people out because there was less to do. So I'm curious what people were doing in your neighborhood. No, I am too. Although. <laughs> Dave's street is one of those, he's, he, he's such a social gadfly because like everyone knows each other on that street. Like it's one of the few streets where everyone like talks in the front of their house yeah. with each other and stuff. But that's, that's the Dave gets factor, I think. One of the great joys, actually, you know, Mick and Karen, they walk by, I'm sure, and they don't stop by because they feel like, yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't bother them. But I'm telling you, Every time they would walk by, it was like it was this little lollipop in the middle of the afternoon. Usually it's the evening, right? So all of a sudden you have somebody to talk to and and you and you do walk outside of your house. It's it was really a, a great, wonderful uh it was a great gift when you guys walk by. And we always love it when you when you reach out and you know we have these stupid two dogs that bark at everybody who comes by. And but it is a lot of fun. So anyway, we do enjoy when you stop by. Well, let's just all go on walks with our spouses tonight. And talk about our future. <laughs> and talk about retirement. Yeah, exactly. Talk about retirement. All right, Mickey, we're so excited again to have you here and talk about memoirs. So we want to start by asking you first, what is your definition of a memoir and how is it different from other kinds of autobiographical writing? I think there's a lot of confusion about what a memoir is and isn't. That's a hard, <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. One, one reason it's hard is because 
I think it's always a mistake to, when it comes to books and thinking about books, we tend to make too rigorous of lines and boundaries between categories. And because you could answer that question so many ways and so many different examples that you could put in that would not, don't necessarily have much similarity or line up in the right ways. Because I, there's, so I would have the memoirs that are just the story of a human soul, just the, you know, someone's life and that you, you just read because it's the arc is the person's life. There isn't a theme, there isn't a something else about it that, you know, makes it go into like politics or current events or religion or something like that. It's just memory. It goes in that category of autobiography, biography, memoir, slash, you know, those categories. And then there's the style of writing called memoir. That has become very popular. It's not that easy to do, but it's a very effective nonfiction strategy for writing. And I'm talking about people like, uh, well, like Annie Dillard, we talked about her earlier, but Anne Lamott, Barbara Brown Taylor, now Kay Bowler's starting to write uh, that way. People who take their story and but it's a means of communicating something that they want to share and communicate. You know, it's a teaching mode. It's a teaching strategy. Like Annie uh, Anne Lamott, who's a master of this, has all these themes she wants to talk about. It, but it, it's almost seemingly random stories, but they all fit together and they reveal something as a whole. And that I think is probably the most likely to be successful. That style memoir where it's just this like you know i'm thinking of like h's for hawk lab girl hillbilly allergy educated those books which are just straight memoir those are those are becoming very much harder to do i'm sure you've heard the term how the mid list is in trouble hmm. in publishing talk about what is the mid list just for our audience the mid list is in trouble those are the you know, you had the best sellers, the people who have the great, you know, past success or well-known, famous, you know, they're going to be a big book. Everyone knows it's going to be a big book. So that's the kind of top of it. The bottom is all the people, the small presses, little things like gift books that, um, you know, just, just the popular books. That's, you know, don't sell that much. But then there's those authors that maybe they've done one or two books. Maybe they've gotten a little bit of a platform. Maybe they're known in their circle either a couple novels or nonfiction, whatever. And what's happened because of how publishing's changed, it has now gone to the two extremes, like really, really niche publishing or really, really big popular. And that mid-list of those that fall in between that used to have a whole career and by now publishers aren't that interested in just because in the new world of how we know get to know books, how we discover new books, it's a lot harder to get them noticed because they they were the ones that were pushed by the all the review publications, and, you know, New York Times Book Review being the most notable, but used to have like hundreds of newspapers would do reviews every week. And that was enough to get them noticed and they would have a career. Now books are a much more in danger of just disappearing entirely. Like no one even knows it's out there. Like usually, there's just no way to discover the new book. And so I've heard agents say, like, "Whoa, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't take on memoirs. We don't want people who do memoir unless they're famous." 
And with a memoir that is a like a story arc, it really is the events of their story. That's kind of the narrative arc, the story arc. And, and so for that book to really get purchased, it has to be a really remarkable story. Like we're interviewing a memoir uh, writer who wrote The Polygamous Daughter, right? So that story in and of itself is just like, oh my gosh, right? That, that story is exceptional. So what I hear you saying is those, those are harder and harder to sell, I think, because in part because the stories that people are telling are not that remarkable. And they have to be really remarkable and have an audience before somebody's going to purchase them. Yes, I think that's right. When we, when I'm looking at a memoir, when I'm looking at a proposal for a memoir, there is, and you and I have talked about this before, Dave. Uh, there is just the the narrative arc. You know, this is what it's about. This is what it's going to cover. Blah, blah, blah. But on a memoir, you always have to step back because it's you know every book is a conversation, part of a conversation, and. It's kind of how we adjudicate different issues of our day uh, is through books and reading different opinions and stuff. And so I always think there's also a meta story level, meta uh, level that what what's the slot in this cultural conversation? A good example of that is Hillbilly Elegy. When J.D. Vance, when, my big question for J.D. Vance Hillbilly Elegy was when they bought the book, when Echo bought that book, what did they think they were buying? Because it was only after, like, right, bef- right before it came out, all of a sudden Donald Trump is running for president, and everyone's curious about who are these people supporting Donald Trump? And a lot of people started pointing to Hillbilly Elegy as the answer, and it blew up. It's a huge book. But when the editors were buying that book, I mean, that was not on the horizon. But that was that, that nice example of the zeitgeist wanting kind of an answer and unbeknownst to the editors and the writer at the time that there was going to be this conversation. I mean, he had it generally, he thought that the Appalachian community with Appalachian ties were underrepresented. He wanted to have like, Hey, these are these, these, these people out there and no one's even seeing them. So that, that was the heart of his mission, but he didn't know how timely that was going to be. Yeah. So that the, the meta conversation became much more important after it was in the works. So I was going to ask you, Mick, when you're looking at books and you're looking at, let's say these, what did you call it? They're memoirs. And then there's also the nonfiction books that are written like memoirs that have the story. Memoir memoir as as a genre. And then there's memoirs as writing strategy. Okay, right. So let's talk about the memoir as a writing strategy. So let's say that you have a proposal in front of you. You kind of like it, but it's kind of missing that meta narrative, that slot that you talked about, what are some signals that it's missing? How, you, how do you know it's missing? And if you were to say to that writer, you need to fix this, how would they fix that? that? I always ask the writer, you know, why, why would someone spend money and time to get this book? I think that's a great question that kind of centers it. Writers often, it's amazing how many people undergo, uh, undertake to write a book without thinking through why anyone would want it, but it happens. And it makes sense. You have some wanting to come out, you know, and you think, okay, all right, I got to get this down, something significant. But unlike, you know, we worked in magazines before magazines, you didn't have the same thing. You, 
you bought the subscription, so you want to have this dialogue with the people at this magazine. And then every issue is, am I going to get my money's worth? Like, is there anything interest here? Do I want to look at it? With a book, it's a lot bigger barrier. It's like, you know, do I want to spend a few hours on this? Do I want to spend money on it? So that is in the in the fore of the forefront of the reader's mind, but the writer really has to have that there. So I have to asking that question. Sometimes it's it's a problem if they hadn't thought about that before. But that focuses it because I want to hear like what what's their passion? What 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 do they want to leave the person? And if if they have a really good answer, that that tells me something. Like okay, here's here's what needs to come out. So I. If, the, if it's not there, but they're kind of searching for it, I, we can have a conversation along those lines and see the threads, what are people responding to? Like we're, we're talking to someone right now who has a decent Instagram following. Her husband has a ex- good Instagram following. They had an ordeal in the kind of extreme sports world. They both live in that, you know, ultra marathon world and stuff. And she started doing uh, posts on Instagram when he got diagnosed with cancer and she, you know, he was in medically induced coma and stuff. And there's during COVID, they had three little kids. And and people were very responsive. They're going to be profiled. They're getting, and people, a lot of people were following them. But the writing right now is, it was not, it's Instagram, like what, what she was feeling that day. It's what what's going on. And for it to work, she has to really kind of frame it so that it leads somewhere. She knows what she wants to say. It's not still trying to discover it. Knows what she wants to say and make sure the narrative is, is moving that way. And she has to know what she wants to leave the reader. Like, what, what, what's the whole point? Why would they be interested? What are they going to get from it? And I think those, that's basically the discussion we have to land on that. That's such a good point. Everybody thinks that their experience is unique, right? Like my sister, her son died last November. And so suddenly she has this experience with death of a child. And, you know, it's like, I want to, I want to write my experience to help other people. And everybody thinks that their word is words are going to help other people. And so they think they need to write a book. And the temptation, I think, is to think that I'm a good enough writer to write a book. But isn't it true that some people may have unique experiences but aren't equipped to write a book? Like you're talking about with this Instagram um, profile, this lady who can write Instagram posts, but does she know how to write a book? It's a totally different beast, right? Well, can she can she learn to write a book? Can oh, she that's turn right. Oh, no, that, that was a lesson early, early on when I was in my 20s at University Press. We had a slush pot where people just send in things and you, we would get that. You know, you get those 600-page proposal, you know, back then when it wasn't, you could just email, attach, attach an email. <laughs> now it was, you know, the man printed out manuscript and it, you know, my wife died of cancer and I finally, I couldn't figure out why, but now I know why I, I need to tell people about my experience. And you're like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Like, and that was just a very painful lesson for me to tell people. It has to have some sign out there that the world wants to hear this message. I think also, not that the idea is unique because people die of cancer all the time, right? But how are you going to write it in a way that connects with readers in a meaningful way? And so I guess my question for you is this, if you think you have these experiences and you want to create a book, you want to write a book, where do you start? I'm curious what you would tell somebody. And they're at that point where... Some people are like, they really can't write, but they still have ambitions of writing a memoir about their experience. Where do you start? 
Or how do you know if you can actually write a book <laughs> or if these are just some blog posts or articles for, you know, a newsletter or whatever? Well, I think it's pretty safe to assume that you're not called to write anything <laughs> unless there's some extenuating circumstances that makes you just have to do it because you're and, and also like it isn't just having an experience. It's having something to say about it like that. You've reflected on it and know there's there's meaning or significance that comes from the story that makes it worthwhile. Because, you know, I mean, even the people who have these, you have to have pretty exceptional experience where people just want to hear the experience. Like I was just thinking of all those near-death books that were popular for a while. I mean, like everyone's kind of interested because we're all going to die someday. Is this proof about what happens to us? But even there, most of them speculate about what it, you know, on the experience and have some message coming from it. I don't know. I just, I just don't, there's a lot of books that just emote and I'm not going to say those don't work. I mean, some of them are, do really, really well, especially if you're on the talk show circuit and stuff like that, whereas just a story people are familiar with, you know, like late, you know, some scandalous murder or something like that. And there's been coverage and then some person writes their story and new new revelations. So yeah, there are books that are just a story and a moat and those work because of just the buzz of media. But in terms of a memoir that would still be of interest a year after it's written, I think you just need something interesting to say about it, something that stays with you that's over and above in significance of just the experience. And is there also a craft to writing memoirs as far as being able to tell good stories? I mean, so many people write these memoirs and they don't really know how to write a good story. Do you come across that when you're evaluating memoirs or if you read some memoirs there, they may have be a great story and have a great idea, but they don't tell the story in a compelling way. They don't use tension. They don't use dialogue well. They don't know how to take the reader on a journey. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be with a big commercial publisher. So like a lot of the proposals I read are vetted. Someone someone has already sifted through what's come in and said, yes, this is worth you know getting behind and trying to get published. So yeah. that's kind of the role of why so many commercial publishers say you must be represented by an agent because the agent has become that first level of gatekeeper. Yeah. yeah. And then you better believe, I mean like I if, if I if it's something I'm going to look at, it, there better be, unless the story just so sensational, you know, there has to be craft. There has to be something that, you know, that that humanity, the detail, where the you know vivid characters, vivid dialogue, vivid descriptions, you know, like someone like Mary Carr, who like just just it's almost impossible for her to write a boring memoir. She's just so skilled. So that's one extreme. <laughs> you know, yeah, we look for that. It has to be there. So as we talk about, let's just say that there's someone who wants to begin to learn how to write a memoir, because at Journey 66, we're all about the aspiring writer. So if you were like coaching someone on this, and they were just starting out, when you look at a memoir, do you often see a governing a governing story that kind of represents kind of where this narrative is going to go? And does that happen in the first chapter? Is there, you know, do you see that memoirs have maybe seven to eight kind of governing stories and then a bunch of minor stories? I realize that memoirs are written more like fiction with plot and movement and, and Danema and all that. But 
just if you were giving advice to someone, how do you, how would you start a memoir? It all comes back to what I said earlier, like knowing why people are interested. And once you kind of know what you want to say, why they're interested in what you want readers to take away, then you can have the strategy of one, how do you hook them in? How do you get them interested? And it doesn't have to be chronological. You know, you could start, you know, a typical one is start in like the most dramatic moment and then kind of leave them there and then go back and bring them up to the drama, either at the end or in the middle on the, how it unfolds. Yeah, that's where I come in when I'm talking to the authors who kind of like kind of feel it kind of there. And then we try to refine that. I do feel like the fun books are, are the ones where it's not linear. Like it's, they've had kind of literary skills and layering through either back, you know, going forward, going back, going forward, going back, and kind of can build this thematic thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's storytelling. We're just good. We love stories. We love, everyone loves stories. And what makes for a good story? What pulls you in? What, what captivates you? I just feel like if most writers at, at the level I work with, like there's skilled at some level, they, they, they've thought this through and have some strategy. You can push them to make it a little bit more either concrete or make it a little bit more effective. But you know, usually it's something they've already had in mind. One thing I'm taking away is, is, is if, a, if a young person or doesn't have to be a young person, older person wants to say, I want to make writing a part of my life. And I think I'd like to write a memoir about this, this section of my life. What I hear you saying is you need to understand the why, why is it important to you? But second of all, why is it, why would somebody care about that? And, and as you think about structuring this, what's the, there's that phrase, what's that phrase, uh, the medias de res, or what's that phrase, Melissa? In medias res. In medias res, yeah, or yeah. something. What's the, it's that into the middle. In other words, you start the story as close to the action as possible. So, you know, just practically, I think once you figure out what, what would the reader really be interested in about my story and what is the significance, it would be one way to start it would be just start with the most dramatic moment in your story and see if you can work backward from that. Is that an idea or is that? That, that is usually a good, a good strategy. It's a good, like that. that's something I've often recommended to people. Another exercise that's kind of fun if you're a writer or if you're considering writing something and go to the people who kind of know the story in your life and ask them either to retell the story to you, back to you or what they found most interesting about the story. That's a really good exercise. It's like the kernels, the things that stood out and it's often different from what the uh, storyteller thinks it's going to be. And, and note those, that those are some of the hooks that will get people in. I was thinking of Lauren Winter's book, Girl Meets God, way back when, which did really well and launched Lauren's uh, writing career. At that, the Metis level that we were talking about, you know, here's the story of a young Jewish woman who becomes a Christian. So there's that. The hook is, for a lot of people, it was a testimony traditional Christian category of that the young people, smart young people are still attracted to the faith and still vital and relevant to today. And it's a lot of Christians were, are encouraged by that. So you knew it was a market. So that's the hook. 
And there's also what's interesting with Lauren, she's a sophisticated writer. So there she knew that there was that reassurance there and that that's why the book would take off. But she had other things she wanted to say too. So she can float those underneath and make sure those come out too. And I thought, you know, she's someone who has a very sophisticated style in how she writes, like what we talked about with like Anne Lamott, Annie Diller, uh, Barbara Taylor, people like that. I'm really interested in that activity where you go and ask people how they remember the event versus how you remember the event and brought to mind this own this question that I have regarding writing a memoir, how much research should you do outside of your own experience? I mean, that's one thing that you can do is go to talk with people and ask them how they remember it. But is there also value in going and doing a little bit of research to help flesh out your idea so it's not just what you narrowly remember is to contextualize it a little bit? Obviously, the more books you read, more literate you are about what works, what you find interesting. And so I just think that if you have any hope of writing a book, you should be reading regularly, uh, just in general. And we take that for granted because the book community is self-selecting and, oh, these are the people interested in books. But, you know, that's not a norm anymore. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this. Like he talks about how there's people who read a lot and people who don't. And it's, you have very different conversations. And his argument is that the people who read a lot get used to seeing the world through others' eyes. And so their, their frame of reference is like just so much broader. Uh, what's possible, even historically, how people thought back then versus now, et cetera. And he says, you can't, it's really hard to have a conversation with people who don't have those different uh, frames of reference. I keep thinking about like, you could say, yes, like it's, it's always good to see what's worked, what, uh, why, why things work, to ask those questions, to do the research of what, you know, like I said, like all of these are conversations. Where are we in the conversation? What came before? What's coming out? What's, what's already been said? So yes, I think that's important. At the same time, the beauty of publishing, the beauty of books is there's always room for something completely new. Like it's never been done that way before. Someone thought that I keep thinking whenever I think about it, it's all a formula and here's what you do. So I think of this, this is a book that I don't know, you can't see it. How to host a Viking funeral. (laughs) The case it's it's basically his story. It's a, it's a memoir of, of just this year in his life. The case for burning your regrets, chasing your crazy ideas and becoming the person you're meant to be. But Kyle, He's just such an interesting character. He, he, he does inspirational talks to high school students and other groups, uh, you know, in, uh, kind of just a speaker on the circuit who happens to do these crazy, funky things. And the proposal came in and, you know, he didn't have this huge platform. He wasn't in front of a lot of people, uh, but he was just irrepressible. Like I, everything I read and meeting with him, I just wanted to hang out with him. Like, he's so fun and he's so cool and so energized. And so we rolled the dice. And uh, then he started on TikTok. And like within a month, he has 2.1 million followers on TikTok. <laughs> How does that even happen? <laughs> yeah, well, his, some of his uh, videos went viral. But that, it was, it, basically, it's a story that he... For when he turned 30, he built a uh, 16-foot cardboard Viking ship and burned it to say goodbye to his 20s and to celebrate entering his 30s. And he got such a huge response. And he does crazy things regularly. Like he's 
He's just one of those guys. So he decided, since he got such a big response, he built a 30-some-foot cardboard boat he was going to build. And he went out and got 20,000 people to send him what they regretted and what what they wanted to get past. And he put them all in the boat and then had at the end of it had a celebration where they burned burned the boat and a Viking funeral in a field, not in the water, in a field. <laughs> and so it's on his farm. And it was, got, you know, it had some coverage. Um, I think it's going to do really well, but it's just an unusual book. So I was just going to say, like, at the end, of it, it's just, he's a good writer. He has math. When he tells a story, he naturally has an element of what, what he learned, but what you could learn from it. And so mm-hmm. I just want to bring that up. Like sometimes there's just a fresh freshness to it. Right. Something compelling, something that's hard to identify. And in that case, it's a real hook. It's memorable. And with any writing that you do, whether it's a memoir or nonfiction, what you, you have to have a hook, something that's memorable, something that people actually talk about and not just get lost in the other, oh, my husband died of cancer when I was 25. And this is what I learned from it, right? This guy yeah. has a hook. So I love that. He's talking about regret and maturity. And it's within this context of a Viking ship, which it's just, you don't hear about in American culture. So yeah, it's memorable. I love that story. That's great. I, I do want to tell you like something that keeps me up at night about memoir. And I thought it might be instructive. Because when I think about the last couple years of books I've read, Two books that I really, really, really loved was Lab Girl by Hope Jaron. That, that was just an amazing book. Uh, H is for Hawk, Helen McDonald. Really, both books are, re- at the end of the day, it's a, just a deep portrait of the human soul and of healing of the soul. Mm-hmm. But here, here's my, my anxiety dream, is if those came in as proposals, how, you know, what would I use as the reason for why we should buy it? You know, I mean, you can probably start building a case and have some comps and stuff like that, but it wasn't, it wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be easy. It's not automatic. And here are these books did very, very, very well. I think they all sold well over a hundred thousand copies and they'd be hard. Like educated, look at educated. Like who who knew, Who, who, who would have imagined? But that's why I say it's also surprising. Someone saw it. Someone had the genius to Yeah, see somebody it. had the vision. And you wonder if it had to do with, you know, when you send in a proposal, you also typically send in a sample writing. So if they saw something just so compelling in the writing of the sample chapter that they sent, maybe they, they felt something in the writing. So maybe the idea, the concept wasn't especially grabby, but the writing was so good. So they knew that people would be compelled to continue reading. Yeah. And that's also part of the conversation. You know, you had the secret life of trees and then, you know, that lab girl kind of had some parallels with that. And so someone might have saw like, oh, maybe we can leverage the interest in this to go over to this. But it, it turns out it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. More like ages for hawk, you know, so that also could have been like soul of the octopus and stuff like animal person. That did well. Oh, maybe this would do well. Um, I can't even remember which came first on that one, but it's not easy or automatic. But mm-hmm. it's it's a bit of, it's a little bit more like fiction. Fiction, fiction is much more a roll of the dice. You, you the editor mm-hmm. has to just be able to see quality and knows what moves people, what would interest people. I often thought about, and I will never do this because this is not. I say this only uh, almost tongue in cheek, but. I spent four years 
at a fundamentalist high school 250 miles away from home in the middle of South Dakota, right? And so I was sent there, um, not so much for reform, but for protection, right? So the fundamentalist mindset is, let's get these kids out of the public schools, let's get them out of the cities, and let's put them in this rural community. And, you know, it was this, uh, this school was 13 miles south of the nearest town, a bunch of low lying buildings. So Versus versus the worldly sections of North Dakota. North Dakota, That's right. right. That's right. The worldly <laughs> sections. That's right. But the, the one thing that I, I I brought up this, actually, we had one of our reunions recently, and I, I brought this up to those who still come. I said, you know, our parents all sent us here because they wanted to protect us from sex and drugs and alcohol. And I said, they actually did us a favor. We actually had more close contact with the opposite sex than we would have ever had going to a regular high school. There were more opportunities for sex. There was more opportunities. And plus, rules are an aphrodisiac. People don't get that. The rules in a place like that, they're not a problem. They're really not a problem because every <laughs> there's they're all they're just things that you work around. Right. And so I've often thought about doing, you know, some sort of memoir about those years, but you'd have to have a hook. And I would never do that because it's there's no why for me to do it. Yeah, this, when it's only six people, you kind of know. Yeah. You know, you <laughs> just change the name. Yeah. <laughs> I had 16 in my high school class. <laughs> That's true. I do think that, uh, and I wanted to bring this up. The reason I brought that up is our memoir is like a slice of your life as opposed to an autobiography it tends to be about the whole narrative arc of your life. So our memoirs much more focused. Would that be kind of a distinction of a memoir? Yes, I think that usually memoirs are thematically driven. Like there's some, this part of your life meant something or there, or even if it's a whole life, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's some, something you've pointed to and said, you know, this, this is what I really want to reflect on and focus on. And I think when you see autobiography, it's usually summing up, summing up like the official story of someone's life that from beginning to end and just everything, just put everything in there. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of defining the life as a whole. Whereas memoir, yes, it's usually there's a, most of the time it's a lens that's telling a particular story or a part of a life that's interesting. But I, I should say one, another strategy, I was, I was just thinking, although I'm, I'm, now I'm blanking on some good examples, but, you know, Anne Lamott and stuff like that. But I really am fascinated by the stories that are, the books that are written. We talked about strategy, but one, one strategy is just a straight memoir that's just unfolding. Uh, this happened and that's happened and this happened. But then your titling strategy is to make it almost prescriptive. Like it's about this. And the chapter titles as if it's like a how-to or what you need to learn. But the writing is just, it's just a story. This and happens, I just think that's this masterful. Yeah, that's masterful if you could do that. I mean, because it's just a lot easier. I, I and I, I want to emphasize that I really think memoir as a writing strategy is hugely important and popular and needed, and especially if done well. But that that people hear prescription through story. So mm -hmm. I recommend it to almost everyone. Memoir as genre, I do not recommend unless. No, you're a really skilled writer or you really have a calling for that. And 
I think you're going to have a lot more success if you frame it as a, it's a book about, and you know what to fill in versus my story or my experience of X. It's a little bit like Death by Suburb. Dave talks about this often, how his book is memoir-like in many ways. It's his experience of the suburbs, but he's using it to illustrate. Exactly. It's about the toxins and the suburban living. So in many ways, that is styled memoir writing, though it's more prescriptive, I suppose. Well, and that's what's wonderful about that book was, even though Dave's talking about his story, really how it works when you're reading it, he's really, even though it's all about him, it becomes all about you because you're, 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 the issues and questions, it's framed like, how does it correspond to what happens to me in my life, my experience in the suburbs? That is a, that's a huge magic formula where the topic hmm. is supposedly some out there through the lens of someone's life but you read it as your story, that's, that's magic. I would just say the thing that probably was the most, the best comments I got on the book did not come from Wheaton because I, I told this, my stories growing up in, a, or not growing up, living here in the suburbs of Wheaton, which you know is this wonderful suburb. And, and I told just these really average stories of you know, the purple book bin versus the blue book bin and, you know, and wives talking about you know, that sex was like having to mop the floor and you know, all these things I would hear in these conversations with my wife's friends and with our friends. But the thing that was the most satisfying was when I would like, after the book went out, I, I, I traveled to San Francisco, I went to Atlanta, and I, I had a lot of speaking engagements. And what was so odd is I'd have somebody that was in a, uh, the word would be upper middle class suburban community. And they go, man, you are writing like you are in my head. Like this is my life. And that was that was the most satisfying because when I told those stories, I thought, man, is this just a little bit over the top? This is really personal and it seems a little narcissistic. But when I would go and speak, people would come up and go, Man, this is exactly my life. And I and it was and it was all over the United States. So that was actually really satisfying. Well, it kind of goes back, Dave, to what you say about that which is most specific is most universal. <laughs> oh, that which is universal most. is most specific. The more specific think, the story, yeah. the more applicability it has. Yeah. But it's also, it reminds me of the saying that, uh, you know, a prophet is not recognized in his hometown. So, no. That's right. So true. Dave, you're so prophetic. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm so prophetic. Well, I, Mick, this was really helpful to me. I think this framing memoir as a strategy versus memoir as a genre, that, though, that alone is worth. That is just really, really helpful to think about. And it gives hope to these young writers who go, okay, there might be this idea I want to talk about, and I can do it through the lens of my story. And I don't know, I just, this is really, really helpful to me. I'm doing a lot of reading on what makes a memoir, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody has framed it like that. So it is a fresh way of thinking about memoir writing. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your insight. Well, I was glad to. It's good to sharpen my thinking about it as well. This is, I always, I always uh, was impressed with the writer of that, who said that, you know, what, what are the books that most influenced you? And he said, uh, actually, to be honest, my own, because uh, as, you, as you write or teach or anything, that's how you learn something. That's right. All right. Well, let's move to our words of the episode before we say goodbye to Mickey. And I will go first. How about okay, that? You're first. All right. It's in Coet. 
I-N-C-H-O-A-T-E. And I always wanted to say Incohate, but I went and listened to it and it's Incohate. So, and it's been only partly in existence or operation. It's incipient form, imperfectly formulated, formless, incoherent. So this is from um, a book called The Imperfect Children. And it, it goes like this. An incut mass of ambition, Julius knew that he had soon, soon to find something to be ambitious for. Otherwise, he risked terminal resentment from which there was no return. So there you go. So how do you say it again? Inchoate. 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 Yeah, I've known what it meant, but I don't think I knew what it sounded like. Inchoate. Yeah. I think I yeah. would say inchoate. Or... That's how I would have said it. So I was glad I went and did that little speaker thing on dictionary. So yeah, That's a great <laughs> word. That is a great word. All right, Dave, what's your word? So mine, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is from Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Uh, it's bivouac, bivouac. Yeah, how do you, that one doesn't look like it sounds either. No, bivouac. <laughs> it's not biovac, it's bivouac. So the emphasis is on the first syllable. So it's this, this staying in a temporary camp that has no cover. So it's miserable. Yeah. So you're out, <laughs> let's say you're out in the woods and you didn't bring any camping gear, but you need to set up a, uh, a bivouac. You need a bivouac because the rain, there's thunder, there's lightning. So you, pull some, you know, some branches together and you crouch underneath the branches until the storm is over. So it's like this temporary camp that you have very little cover. So here's the quote. She's such a dense writer. So this is from Annie Dillard Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Terror and beauty insoluble are a ribbon of blue woven into the fringes of garments of things both great and small. No culture explains explains no bivouac offers real heaven or rest. So what does that mean, Dave? I have no idea. <laughs> but you sound smart reading it. <laughs> right. I read Andy Diller, Pilgrim, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, you know? Yeah. I, you actually have to read the context of the, of right. that page before you right. get what she's actually talking about. Yeah. And I, I have read this book. I don't know how many times, but I pulled this out of the reader, the Andy Diller reader. So I need to go back and see the context before I can even, try to explain what this means yeah that's what's interesting about writing like you're not sure what she means but at the same time she's just created space where we see the world in a bigger way and like the mystery comes in and even not sure what it means is part of the revelation that she's communicating which is i mean she's so skilled at that i mean that's what she does best yeah. yeah, she does. She does weave together a lot of opposition, if I'm to observe what's happening in the sentence. And so in that opposition, I think that there is kind of this unrest. And I think that that's kind of what she's getting at the end. There's no bivouac offers real heaven or rest. There's this, it sounds like it's leaving you in unrest, right? Whatever it is that's happening oh, yeah. around this. So yeah, but you're right. Great writing creates a mood and creates a feeling. And she does that so expertly. What were you going to say, Dave? Well, she juxtaposes terror and beauty, yeah. and and that's part of what she's doing in this in Pilgrim at Tinker Tinker Creek, right? Yeah. She's uh, she spent I think it was a year at a cabin on the East Coast, someplace on the East Coast, and she wrote the book, and uh, I think she won the did she win the Pulitzer? I think she or the National Book Award for that one. I think it was the Pulitzer for Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It was like her one of her first books, right? And so she had this huge success as a writer, and I think it probably. 
uh, probably didn't do her as well for the rest of her career. But uh, yeah, what do you mean? That gave her a career. That's uh, true. That's true. <laughs> but I don't know if there's any book like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, although Teaching Stones to Talk is good. The Living, the, f- the fiction is good. Yeah. Okay. I take it all back. Take it all back. I take it all back. <laughs> Give Annie Dillard a break. <laughs> all right. Dave, before we say goodbye, Mickey, can you tell us a little bit about what our listeners can find on the Journey 66 website if they go and visit it right now? So we would just say, hey, jump on journey66.com. You can either do journey60, which is written out, and the numeral 6.com, or just go to journey and then the number 66.com and uh, jump on and take our quiz. We have this one minute quiz that will, for those of you who are in this inchoate stage or form Good of, years, your, Dave. of yeah. your idea, you're right at the beginning. You want to start to shape that idea. Take the quiz and you get this little activity worksheet that helps you winnow your thesis. And it's so practical and it really will take you a thousand miles down the road in your writing. So go to journey66.com, jump on, take the quiz and you'll be off and running. I want to thank you again, Mickey, for being here. We hope to have you back on again in another year, maybe. We're like on the year cycle here. That's right. <laughs> All right. I look forward to it. Thank you yeah. so much. It's been great. Thank All you, right. Andrew. That is a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.